on this week's episode of Where We Are, we talk about how I broke my leg, and also former President Trump's relationship with evangelical leaders, as well as a New York Times op-ed on the four-day work week. You're listening to Where We Are. You're listening to Where We Are. We are the Where's. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And Melissa. Yeah. We are recording this episode. Uh, I'm laying down. We're not sitting around the kitchen table. Uh, I have not been on my leg in two weeks. Yep, two weeks since uh, Friday. Yeah, and so uh, let's let's jump in. We're sorry for the uh, for the break. Uh, uh, folks, but I had a break, uh, and, and there was Michael nothing we could do about himself. it. Yeah. So, Melissa, why don't why don't you sort of uh, you know we don't need to talk about it too much, but but tell tell folks what we've been dealing with here in the warehouse.old <laughs> Yeah. So um, that week of the sixth of March. Uh, the Center for Christianity and Public Life had its first retreat for its newest inaugural fellows class. It was so good. And so it was such a good retreat. You were having a fun time in Virginia on that retreat. And I had decided months prior to take both of our kids, Alaria and Saoirse, to Arizona to visit with my brother, John, and sister-in-law, Jenna, and our two nieces to hang out for, you know, like eight days while my nieces were on their spring break. So... Michael and I part ways. You know, I go out to Arizona on the plane ride over. Alaria spiked a huge fever. The very next day, I took her to urgent care. She had a raging double ear infection. And then about a couple hours later, my sister-in-law, Jenna, suddenly came down with norovirus, which then spread around our house. And on Friday night that week, I got the norovirus finally, and I had just been sick for the first time and got a frantic phone call from michael i was calm no you were you were very distressed i was composed but continue no you were distressed i get a distressed phone call while i am hung over a toilet and you tell me that you've broken your ankle and we proceed to get you medical care um, we, we had, fr- we had to call in friends to take you to urgent care and then take you to an emergency room. This was in DC. You find out you've broken your leg, your tibia and your fibia. And multiple th- times. Yeah. yeah multiple fractures. Three, yeah. Three places. I call up my parents. My parents have to come in the next day. We get you into a hospital in, uh, in, in Baltimore. So back home and you proceeded to get a surgery, a very successful surgery. We're told on your leg you had some complications post-surgery with the anesthesia that were extremely scary. Um, and then I was finally able to come home from Arizona um, a couple of days after your surgery and to start taking care of you. And my parents stayed a while to get us all settled because you ended up with the norovirus. My mom ended up with the norovirus. It was a wildly powerful virus. I will just say that. Um, Wild. Yeah, so so that's that's the whole story, um, and you know, like for one of the first time, because I'm like an extremely private person, and so you know, while all this was happening, because I just felt so stuck and trapped, and then the complications after your surgery, you know, I kind of tweeted out, 
um, what was going on and put it on Instagram and asking for prayer because I just felt God telling me that I needed to go far and wide, cast the widest net of having people just pray for you, just hundreds of people. And that's what I got. So many of you prayed for us, for, for Michael's well-being, for me to get home, for our family to get well, for the help that we were receiving that we continue to get from friends and family. Um, so, I mean, just really grateful to everybody and... Oh man, it was it was a lot of stress. I was very stressed out. In the meantime, I was trying to meditate on Psalm forty six ten. You know, be still and know that I am God, and running around constantly, um, and trying to keep that sort of as like my beacon on the hill. That scripture. Um, so you know, that's that's a little insight into how I was feeling. How do you feel, Michael? How are you doing? You know, I'm doing. Okay, it was crazy. I mean, the, the scariest part I was knocked out for, you know? So, yeah. Um, I wish I could have been knocked out. Yeah, you know <laughs> that. Uh, but, yeah, I've, I've never really broken anything before. And so I wasn't, like, confident that I broke my leg. I knew something was wrong, but I just kind of thought, oh, I'll just, like, tough through it. And I thought you sprained your um, ankle. Yeah, sure. Um, now, when I fell, I, like, heard <laughs> heard things pop and snap. And um, they're, looking back, there were some clear signs. And then, like, the, the x-ray at urgent care, the guy was like, now, tell me again, you were run over by something, right? Like, <laughs> um, and so it was, it was a really bad break. And then, you know, I think, um, I don't want to like over, overplay it. I think I was taken care of, um, uh, but, uh, you know, Melissa, you got calls that they could not wake me up. Um, yeah. Uh, and I was, I went Multiple. in, I went in at 7.30, 8am for a surgery and they couldn't wake me. The surgery was over at like, it was very quick. Like, it was very quick. Like Cause it was really successful. They did a 10 AM or something. Um, I wasn't up until 7.30, uh, that night. And so, uh, I'm glad, you know, glad to be alive. Um, you know, the, with with something like this um the 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 pain is really fine the pain is 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 manageable especially since you know after the surgery um but it is just such a downer to have to be constrained in this way and so we'll see what the prognosis is we have a doctor's appointment on monday but that's the main thing i'm that's the main thing i'm dealing with is just the um just the the way this is going to change my life our family's life for at least the next several months and so we're, we're wrestling with that i will say i have like growing convictions about the importance of mental health care alongside uh alongside you know as part of hospital care um th there um we don't need to get into the into the weeds but 
I, I think I faced real mistreatment in the first hospital I was at. And I think some of that was due to, uh, to, to negligence and just, just <laughs> coming across some, some folks who just weren't, uh, frankly, weren't great people. But I think a lot of it is just uh, hospitals, especially ER rooms, especially in cities, um, uh, there are a lot of, uh, there were a lot more serious cases than mine. Just in the time that I was there, it seemed like there were three, four separate cases of victims of violent uh, crime. Um, and so what that means is there's like a burden on our healthcare system that I think um, uh, makes it so that uh, compassionate care is just harder to deliver. Uh, and so... Uh, having some mental health care resources and frankly professionals alongside that process, knowing that uh, there isn't going to be the capacity among the, sort of the traditional medical staff for uh, like checking in with patients and that kind of thing. Uh, I, I, I think is, is, uh, is something I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks, but I too want to share Melissa's, uh, what Melissa said. We're just so grateful for all the prayers and support that we've received, uh, from so many of you. Uh, you know, I kind I don't know about you, Melissa, but I kind of felt like, you know, there are a lot of people facing more serious sort oh, of yeah, challenges sure. than, than, than this. Uh, and so there, there was like a bit of guilt, like as, as folks sort of express their, their care. Um, yeah, but you it, and I just aren't used to asking for help. We, yeah. we're, we're very self-sufficient people. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. but it, it meant a lot. It really meant a lot to feel cared for in that way. Yeah, and so, for, for sure. So thank you. We'll keep you updated. Hopefully I'll be back on both of my feet uh, in, I, th I think the prognosis at this point is eight to 12 weeks. We'll know more. Uh, we'll know more uh, later in the coming week. Um, in the meantime, uh, I'm known as Peg Lake Joe around the house. Uh, Peg Lake Joe. Uh, Saoirse calls me Hoppy. Uh, and so I'm sure as, as we are prone to do, we will, uh, we will, uh, acquire several new uh, nicknames in terms of endearment as this goes on. Uh, but, all right, Scrappy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let's. I think let's take a quick break. When yeah. we get back, we uh, we have an incredible, incredible New York Times op-ed <laughs> on the four-day work week to talk with you about, and also want to talk about uh, Trump's campaign. And how evangelical leaders are relating to it. Uh, we'll do that when we get back after the break. You're listening to Where We Are. And we're back. This is where we are. We are the wares. And 
Melissa in the Atlantic. Tim Alberta has a interesting story on conversations he's been having. Uh, Tim Alberta, journalist for the Atlantic, has written some excellent uh, uh, stuff uh, on evangelicals and politics, particularly over the last five or six years. Uh, he's uh, uh, he's a believer himself. Uh, Tim wrote a piece based on conversations he's had with evangelical leaders that, and this is important, in the context of the Republican primary, not the general, he notes in the piece, uh, most, uh, basically, virtually all of the evangelical leaders he spoke to affirmatively said that they would yes. they would support Trump if he won the GOP nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that leads to a dynamic that we'll talk about, that we've talked about on this show before. Um, uh, but within the context of, of the Republican primary, the, the message I got out of it was uh, Trump is basically back at square one, which is, and we've talked about this before, people rewrite history. People act like 2016, all the evangelical political leadership just lined up behind Trump. That's not true. Uh, 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 a lot of the evangelical leadership was behind Ted Cruz, uh, was behind even uh, Scott Walker. Um, uh, what happened was once Trump got steam in the Republican primary, and certainly after he locked up the, the primary, then the evangelical leaders sort of coalesced behind him. Uh, but it looks like he's starting back at square one. And a big reason for that, or at least in, in Tim Alberta's narrative, the big reason for that is... In the wake of the midterms, Donald Trump, uh, uh, in Alberta's words, desperate to sort of uh, evade blame for Republicans underperforming in the midterms, uh, uh, cast blame on the abortion issue and on pro-lifers. And uh, the pro-life crowd obviously did not did not like that. <laughs> that that really helped support. Uh, a narrative that is now basically um, conventional wisdom that w- with, I should say, some merit that the abortion issue uh, was a, a, a uh, really put a put a ceiling on what Republicans could do on in the midterms. And so Tim Alberta goes through a range of conversations with evangelical leaders. Uh, he talks about how other primary Candidates are seeking to take advantage of this opportunity among political evangelical leadership. So that's another thing. When we're talking about evangelical leaders, we're not talking about your favorite megachurch pastor. We're talking about the political leadership. We're talking about Ralph Reed. We're talking about Tony Perkins. We're talking about like the state-based evangelical organizers in these states. We're talking about leaders of pro-life organizations uh, so, so th- that that's it's the the political evangelical leadership class that that we're talking about here, Melissa. What what's your what what do you think this this means? If anything, who do you think has uh, the best shot of consolidating 
evangelical support, evangelical, the support of evangelical leadership, which should not be taken to be synonymous with the support of evangelicals broadly, but evangelical leadership uh, away from Trump, sort of, sort of what's your, what's your takeaway from, from this story and from what we've seen in the early months of, of this campaign? Well, going back to your statement that in like 2016, there's a narrative that, you know, the evangelical leaders were always around Trump when they weren't. He had to win, win them over because basically he became the front runner and evangelical leaders wanted a winner. That was the top thing, like the the number one issue, like anything like policy proposal of like, oh, he'll change up the Supreme Court or anything like that came secondary. It was they want a winner. They want a warrior. Then they want any of those, you know, things on, um, you know, uh, pro-life stuff. So with this piece, it's kind of like they seem to be railing around DeSantis so far because um, Alberta rightly sort of talks about the juxtaposition of uh, Vice President Mike Pence and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and how uh, Pence actually has cultivated a ton of relationships um, with evangelical leaders. He speaks the language. He's a believer himself, like so on and so forth. He's been going around, you know, uh, you know, connecting his faith with like his positions and how he would lead and all that sort of thing. And then you have Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who Tim Alberta points out, has really done the least to actually court evangelical leaders, but seems to be the front runner with evangelical leaders because he's been winning some straw polls and he is like the front runner to beat Trump who well, is being and seen be, as sort of like well, dead on and, arrival. And because he, people view him as someone who can win. Yep. And, Cause that's the next trait right. is that Mike Pence is being viewed too soft. There is a, there's a leader. I forget which leader um, says it in the piece uh, being quoted in the piece is saying that Mike Pence is too soft, but Ron DeSantis is viewed as the champion, the warrior, someone who will go and fight, someone who will go and g- give the knockout punch just like Trump did to, you know, all, you know, Roe v. Wade and abortion activists and that whole thing. So to answer your question, I feel like evangelical leaders are just going to coalesce around whoever's at the front runner when the nomination truly matters, when voting actually starts and is, you know, gains momentum. As you go down the line. Yeah, I mean, right. Maybe it's too so, simplistic, but I'm not sure. So, you know, um, we're, we're going to see if evangelical leadership tries to coalesce to avoid a Trump nomination. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's the thing for me, which is not, oh, are these evangel these evangelical leaders are they queasy about Trump? I, they were all queasy about him before, most of them. the 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 question is, heading into twenty twenty four, do they not want him to get the nomination? Like, do they do do they viscerally not want him to get the nomination? Enough to overcome their own turf wars, their own animosities, and line up behind an alternative. Um, and then, you know, there's been a lot, I've seen, I've watched some of the discourse on this. Yes, evangelical leadership uh, supporting a candidate 
doesn't mean uh, evangelicals are uh, even mass evangelicals are going to follow. But I just want to underestimate mm-hmm. the, the the hold that a narrative could take yes. among mass evangelicals about Donald Trump about the, the uh, you know there are a number of ways to play this that that uh, uh, that. that that God God used him for a time, but that time is over. You know, you're going to hear a whole bunch of religious rhetoric and all these sort of prophetic sort of stories and and quote unquote prophetic. You know, there are all kinds of manipulative ways that this can be situated in a way that will give evangelicals a permission structure to move on from Trump. Now, the counter argument is. What we talked about on the last episode, Melissa, which is you're, you're, you're looking for evangelicals to choose someone different from Trump when so many of these candidates are playing Trump's game. Yes. Now, I do think to a, to a certain degree, well, you know, Mike Pence is something of an exception, but I just... He was Trump's vice president. So so this whole idea that Pence is, you know, a, a, a nicer guy and, and you know, he, he'd be such a break from Trump. I'm sorry, the, the vice the vice president of Donald Trump cannot be a break from Donald Trump. That's just not. And, and you're going to hear, believe me, you're going to hear folks that will. If I told you who they are now who the people that I think and believe and know will be making the case for Mike Pence. If I told you now, you'd say, Michael, you're crazy. I would just watch this play out. Just watch. Think in your head of three or four people, pundits, etc., that you would say, oh, they'd never, they'd never uh, advocate for Mike Pence. Write down their names and revisit this in nine months. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Um, I'm smirking at you right now. You are smirking at me. I know exactly who you're thinking of. You are smirking at me. Um, You know, Tim Scott is someone who... We talked about him on the last episode as well. He's someone who's trying to develop a bit of a harder edge, I I think, to try and outflank Pence and also to... To, to make an impression. He doesn't have the name recognition that even Mike Pence does and certainly not Trump or DeSantis. But but Tim Scott is someone that I feel could make his own lane that is distinguished from Trump but also appealing in a different kind of way. We're going to see. I, th- I think you're going to see three or four more legitimate candidates jump in this race. Uh Really, I'd say any serious candidates, there could always be exceptions and historical anomalies, but really you're looking for folks to jump in between now and and Labor Day at the latest. But honestly, folks who are serious should be jumping in March, April, May. Uh, Mike Pence was on Fox News this week. He said he's getting very close to a decision. Um, so we're 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 going to see this play out, but Melissa, I think the main the main point is Trump is back at square one with evangelical leadership. Uh, he doesn't have to uh, 
rebuild a tie with sort of mass evangelicals. But I just caution people against thinking that mass evangelicals can't be moved. Remember, these folks mobilized for George W. Bush. These folks mobilized. Now, yes, there have been some changes in politics, but just never underestimate how fluid evangelicals are politically in this country, particularly within the Republican context. There is a surprising uh, window and, or surprising sort of um, a field uh, at which evangelicals can go between a left and right flank, not politically speaking, but just sort of, uh, um, there are a lot of directions evangelical voters can, can take in a Republican primary. Uh, should the, uh, you know, given the right leadership, given smart campaigning, that kind of thing. So we'll see how this race develops. You know, right now, I think, Melissa, correct me if I'm wrong. I was, you know, uh, uh, it has been a crazy two weeks. But yeah. I think I think the only official, I think it's only Trump, Haley. Mm -hmm. I know there's the, there's the like Silicon venture capitalist whatever vivek but but in terms of serious candidates i think it's only trump and, and halley that are officially in with desantis scott uh and um uh desantis scott and uh pence a sort of sort of really indicating they're building campaigns and then again i think we'll see two or three others uh, significant candidates jump in. Yep, that's correct. Yep. Any, uh, Melissa, any... Oh, and Pompeo. Pompeo is still playing around. And Tim, Pompeo! And, and, Alber and Tim Alberta does mention him does. in the article because Pompeo does speak the language just as well as Pence does. He's been really heavily courting the evangelical activists. Yeah. Um, uh, I, um... I don't think he has what it what it takes to 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 run and win a, a national campaign, um, but you know we'll see. I mean, it could be an interesting if he runs hard on Israel, which he do on the David Accords, which is you know, widely held as, as a success of the Trump administration. And then uh, just absolutely uh, uh, doggedly on the Afghanistan mm -hmm. withdrawal. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there is a lane. I kind of don't think the Republican electorate is going to be as motivated by someone whose primary credentials are in the foreign affairs international uh, space. The Republican electorate yeah. seems so focused yeah. on domestic conflict yes. and concerns yes, right now absolutely. that I think, I, I think it's not Pompeo's time, but, but who knows? Yeah, agreed. And then the other one that, I mean, Alberta didn't mention, but you and I are always hawk-eyed about him is uh, Glenn Youngkin, yes. the Virginia governor, who we think is extremely savvy. Yes. I think he's extremely savvy. I think he is a more palatable DeSantis. I think exactly he is. Right. 
I think he's he's a more likable Pence. I think he's uh, I think that he um, uh, he like DeSantis. He doesn't have a firm tie to Trump, which I think uh, could be a benefit, certainly in a general election. Um, and you know, I just I just think he ran a great campaign in Virginia. Uh, politically speaking, I mean, it gives me confidence and, you know, my, my thing, which is, um, especially in Virginia where they have term limits, you know, the worst, if, if he has national ambitions, the worst thing he could do is try and run against Kane or Warner, you know, for the Senate. So it's kind of like, what's next for him? And maybe he's content with just being governor and serving, you know, serving out, uh, his, his time there. But if, if there's a next step for him, I think 2024 is the time to take it. I wouldn't, I want to wait for 2028. So, uh, so we'll see with him, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue to, to, to watch the, uh, 2024 race develop. Uh, but Melissa, speaking of four, uh, <laughs> <laughs> incredible, incredible transition, Thank Michael. Thank you. Wow, uh, I admire. Just yeah, bow down. To I had a lot one. of time to think about that transition. Uh-huh, yep, it was just so natural, flowed from the mouth. And uh, oh, Melissa, <laughs> there is a it's, New York Times up ad. Yes, do you want to tee this up? Yep. So there, Michael and I have been keeping watch on this work from home debate, the four day work week um, statistics that have been coming out. Um, and just about the nature of work, you and I are just deeply interested in that. And then, like, the policy perspective that that obviously comes into that. Um, so there was, on March 22nd, an op-ed came out with the New York Times called, Is Working From Home Really Working? And it's from Stephen Ratner, who is a counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. And this op-ed, um, it, it tries to present... Not just a sort of economic argument, but a sort of wider social social fabric, social cohesion argument around how um, this new approach of, you know, long term uh, post pandemic working from home is going to do long lasting damage to economic growth and prosperity and the sort of like American dream and um, the sort of benefits that America gets from, you know, everybody working, you know, from, from an office every single day a week, you know, how that, that will just, will just sort of start saying goodbye to that. And meanwhile, he presents the article in China, they have a term called 996, where it's, um, you work for six days a week from 9am to 9pm, hence 996 and how, and how much he admires and it. how much he admires it. I just admire it. Um, and I mean, here's a quote here. It's right at the beginning of the op-ed, uh, and quote, until COVID most employed Americans had work days that followed a decades old pattern, wake up, shower, breakfast, commute, spend at least eight hours in an office or factory, commute home, and maybe enjoy a glass of wine or beer, rinse and repeat every Monday through Friday, just a fact of life for most drudgery for many and enjoyment for a few, most often those closer to the pinnacle of responsibility and compensation. End quote. I mean, like, what's amazing is like, yes, that is a summary, but you would expect like what would follow would not be like a case 
for that. Like yes. It, like it's the, it is the most like dreary summary of what life was like before COVID that you could make. And yet the whole article is like, yeah, like it stunk, but look at the GDP. Like, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. it was like that this article is, um, a, uh, w- well, well, so I'll say a more serious way, and then I'll say uh, what someone. Uh, <laughs> I know exactly what. Yeah, you're yeah. Quote. So the more the more <laughs> serious way uh, of describing it, the kind of is is it's it was like um, a caricature of how you would think an economist would think about the economy and and yes. the workplace. Yes. Um, there's uh, there's an assessment of how people were doing, but the metrics of how people were doing don't really matter in light of the macro economic data. Um, the, the, the more pithy way to say this, which was a comment I've seen, I, I don't know who said it, but someone commented, uh, was this written by an office building? Um, <laughs> which... <laughs> well, no, that's what this, that's what this op-ed struck me as. Yeah. When it comes to the economic growth argument, what it seems like, and he doesn't come out and say it at all, so that's why, another reason why I just can't like this op-ed, is that it seems like he should have gone after... You know, how our cities are built and what they're built around. They're built around office buildings. They're built around people working in an office five days a week. And the damage that this working from home will do to right. cities, will do to developers, will do to rent, will do to downtown cityscapes and, like, how they are built. Like, yeah, that's, like, a really good discussion to be having. And, you know, like, Brookings should be working with, like, the young urban planners in schools right now who, you know, aren't used to sort of building cities around offices and should be, you know, generating new ideas for how cities can build themselves in an age where more people work from home. Like, that's the sort of, like, you know, that's where you want think tanks investing. That's where you want policy investing of, like, okay, we've got this. You know, what are we going to do about it, especially on the policy side of things? But he doesn't mention any of that sort of economic... Um, damage at all it's basically he he says that you know productivity is down but here's the thing there are literal peer-reviewed studies and one was done by um with nasdaq workers there was a 13 percent increase um with work from home now when they actually survey bosses managers all of them don't think that that's true they're very very afraid they're calling it um uh productivity paranoia that's what they're calling it for managers and bosses and ceos are calling it productivity paranoia where they think that their workers are not as productive and this this person who wrote this op-ed ratner kind of goes along with that mentality when actually we have a lot of stats that show that productivity has gone up and workers are so much more satisfied their mental health is a lot better their work from their their work home life balance is better i i will say like I share some skepticism. I share some skepticism that, you know, you take out a work day and productivity is going to go up. Like, I think you need some pretty rock solid evidence that well, we that do. is going to. Well, we have peer reviewed uh, studies. Yeah, yeah there are. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think that there's enough data in Melissa to to say a cross sector sort of uh that that 
that holds true across sector for the American economy. But uh, to I'm saying that to make this point, which is um, there are ways to make that argument that are more in touch with um, practical concerns and the way he could have emphasized small business owners. But instead, yeah. instead <laughs> I mean, again, it, the, the article is such a caricature. He quotes... Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, at at the World Economic at the World Economic Forum in Davos to like make his argument. He's like, "Well, Jamie Dimon says working remotely quote doesn't work for young kids or spontaneity or management at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos." It's like, wow, he is not making an effort. I mean, this op-ed really is written to like the to a very select group of uh, of decision makers and elites, or Stephen Ratner is just very out of touch with with uh, with with any normal people. But the other favorite, my other uh, favorite piece of this op-ed was he includes like a two paragraph uh, uh, argument. <laughs> where he he tries to blame uh, the Silicon Valley bank issues uh, mm -hmm. on on the four day oh, work yeah. week. Oh. I mean, it was it's oh, yeah, just that's, like that's unbelievable. It. That was the problem for yep. Silicon Valley yep, bank. That was it. That was it. Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, it's so the op ed is just it's just really uh, really stunning. I do think that there's an argument to be had about. You know, I, I do think the most solid like points of the article were, um, you know, when he got into uh, when, when he said, look, over the medium to long term, uh, if you want to move into a four day work week, you'll you have to accept a uh, decelerating or even um or even a fall back in standard of living. Now, I think you could have an argument about whether that's actually what well, so you could have an argument about whether that would play out. But I feel like that's a that's a um, that's an argument worth worth playing out. I do think that there are a lot of these, um, and I, I can't remember if we talked about it on the pod or. Or if it was just another conversation I was having with somebody, but but when you, I think it was on the pod. I can't. Maybe you'll rem, maybe you'll remember the context. Yeah, what's up? Um, uh, I feel like uh, younger people uh, say they they look at the status quo. They say. You know, they identify things that are going wrong and they support, you know, policy changes to address those things that are wrong. And, and when you confront them with like the negative externalities of what their policies might do, they'll just sort of say, well, yeah, but we're fixing what's wrong. We'll we'll deal later with 
the negative consequences yeah. of what we do. But this is a problem. We've dealt with it long enough. We need to take drastic action to take care of this. And then if there are negative consequences, we'll deal with those later. I do think there is a more heightened um, sense of responsibility that folks need to take regarding four-day work week. But but really, I'm talking more for just um, uh, uh, mass sort of societal changes generally. Um, there is a responsibility people have to take for addressing the negative consequences that people like Stephen Ratner, the the others, I mean, you could you could point to the Larry Summers criticism of sort of the early Biden economic moves, like mm-hmm. I, you, you know, like the, the, there there is a responsibility people have to take. Well, if if these are the things that could go wrong with moving to a sort of national four day uh, work week or just like a more widespread four day work week. Um, here's how we'll mitigate those negative consequences. And that's a debate that has to happen. This op-ed though is not, is not going to win the day in my view. Like like, this is the worst way to defeat a move to a four day work week that I could imagine. I just have to point out one other. On the popular level. Yeah. Yeah. I just have to point out one more quote because you're right to point out the he one of his main arguments is that we're going to have to expect a deceleration of our standard of living if we do move to so much remote work and a four day work week. And in one of the in one of the paragraphs, he says, you know, um, at the peak of less than normal spending during the worst of the pandemic, the stimulus checks at its peak, Americans had two point one trillion more in their bank accounts than customary. Today, they still have about nine hundred billion of excess savings. And he points that out as a, as a negative. People having savings as a negative. First of all, that says a lot about our economy that we want people to be operating on fewer savings and to be operating in a scarcity mindset. I mean, I'll just I'm gonna leave that, you know, over here. Put a pin in that sort of thing, but. The argument that he doesn't quite bring home there that I think is underlying that is that because spending has been so consumer spending and consumption has been so high and our supply chain hasn't been able to keep up. That is one of the reasons why we've had a such high and quick, very fast high inflation and stagflation, sticky inflation is because of the fact that people are able to spend more money because they're not spending it on commutes. They're not spending it on, you know, lunch every single day because they're working in an office five days a week. And so, like, there's an argument right there about how do you actually accommodate the American economy for especially for um, office workers, because this is what we're really talking about here is mainly office workers. We're not talking about service industry. We're not talking about factories, manufacturing, like those industries. We're talking about the office industry. How do you... um, adjust policy, adjust the economy, adjust narratives and thinking around this idea that we're probably going to have hybrid working for a very long time now. We have, you know, they just recently had a study where 61 companies tried out a four-day work week and the majority of them are keeping the four-day work week. How do we adjust things so that we don't continue to have these aggregate macroeconomic negative effects like inflation that just sticks around forever because people 
I have too much money to spend besides the fact that obviously there's price gouging and a lot of companies are making record profits and keeping inflation high by keeping their prices high. Like, I mean, there's, I'm not going to discuss that here, but this played into why we had inflation because a lot more, there was a lot of really hot consumer spending when supply chains couldn't keep up. So he doesn't even bring in that argument. I'm like, it's right there for the taking. Like you're kind of getting into it. Um, And then there's just the argument here as well that we have, you know, in an age of AI, you know, becoming far, far more sophisticated and replacing a lot of workers and, you know, creating art and writing essays and doing a sort of, you know, the worry has been for the past few years that AI would replace the type of workers who are more in like the retail service industry, that sort of thing. We now have the threat of AI replacing like office workers. And then in an age where people are more isolated than ever, are very lonely, that there actually is an argument that, you know, for hybrid working, for people working three days a week in an office, like the camaraderie thing is actually consequential. Like it yes. actually does matter for a lot of people. Yes, yes, yes. There are a lot of, you know, folks who are really isolated and really lonely and actually having face to face with their coworkers or their boss really matters to them. Yep. And so that argument around social cohesion and how we actually with work we are actually forced to actually talk to another human being face to face when we are becoming increasingly separated into suburbs and separated into our little political factions and living together amongst people who think like us like all that stuff like work is actually a facilitator of people coming from very different backgrounds into the same space and having to get along so melissa you'd think you know, national conversation about loneliness, mental health, social cohesion, that what you're saying would make sense. But instead, Stephen Ratner has a better solution, which is to say, look at the Chinese and how great they are. Yeah, that 996, <laughs> 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Why can't you know, we be more you like know, them? You know how much, mm-hmm. you know how much we all like like the Chinese government right now. You know how much Let's we do it. We need to we need to do it like them. Let's <laughs> it's not just be unbelievable. We hate communism, but give us the economic model. Okay. No, no, that's exactly <laughs> yeah, again. But we should be aware of different choices being made in other countries, particularly China, our biggest strategic adversary. The Chinese expression 996 means working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. While the Chinese government has been trying to curb this practice as part of a series of labor market reforms, in my many interactions with businessmen and investors there, I still find the prevailing work ethic extraordinary. That's it's a communism, quote. Stephen Ratner. That's good. That, that, that is the legacy on which you're Yeah, you're that drawing. work ethic. I... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, again, we encourage you to, <laughs> encourage you to look up this op-ed. Uh, is Working From Home Really Working by Stephen Ratner. Uh, Stevens, I don't know him personally. We worked in the Obama administration together. He's a great guy. I believe he was uh, um, a key uh, a key person involved in um, uh, efforts to uh, bail out and save yeah, General Motor, yeah. Motors and the auto industry. He's done really good work. Uh, but let's this, just say he was this, he wasn't on he wasn't on the comms team. Okay, this this, this op-ed is not. It was written is, by an office is, building. Is not uh, hitting the kitchen table issues. Okay, um, all right, Melissa. Well, it was fun talking about talking about that. Uh, um, is there 
Uh, anything else you want to cover before we uh, before we land the plane on this episode? No, we can land the plane. We Although can... I should probably land it because you're you're. I don't. I, I don't know if you need both legs for landing a plane. I don't know anybody a pilot out there. Yeah. Do, do I need my left leg to land a plane, or can I just have it sort of off to the side? Um, <laughs> all right, folks. We will. Uh, we'll keep you up to date. We're gonna try and maintain our schedule with morning five, Monday through Thursday, as usual. Uh, weekly episodes. We should be back, barring like you know another broken limb uh the norovirus somehow making its fifth circulation through our household we should be we should be back uh uh for uh for for good for for the time being uh again thank you for hanging with us uh would encourage you to uh, uh to review this podcast subscribe with us at reclaiminghope.substack.com and stay in touch with us over social media. Uh, Until next time, you've been listening to Where We Are. Bye!